Welcome back to the Fit CFO Show. I'm your host, Amanda Hanquist, and together with my husband, Sean, we created this podcast as a way to help you reach your business's financial goals. We will break down common financial myths and mistakes in business and share with you the tools and knowledge to take your business to the next level. Our hope is that you'll become financially equipped for success in your business and in turn help our mission to make this world a healthier place. If you get valuable information out of this podcast, we just ask that you please share it with your audience and leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and help health and fitness businesses succeed. Today on the show, Sean and I are welcoming Landon Troyer with Wealth Plan Partners to talk about life insurance. When it comes to this topic, there's a lot to dig into from business succession planning, key employee retention strategies, buy sell funding strategies, or just plain life insurance that's best suited for you. There's a lot of not so great information out there too when it comes to life insurance. So we thought it would be great to hear it straight from an educated source. This is the Fit CFO Show. Thank you for being on the show today. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. Well, you and Sean have known each other for quite some time. So we decided it'd be a super great idea to bring Landon on the show today because we get a lot of questions about life insurance. There's a lot to dive into here. And so we thought we better bring on an expert so that we can give you all the different options there are available, pros and cons of each thing when you would want to uh, utilize the benefits of one of these uh, products. But let's just kind of dive into it. But first of all, let's talk about you a little bit. Welcome to the show. How did you get into life insurance? Did you wake up one day and say, mom, I'm going to do life insurance for a living? Definitely not. Um, My background comes from, um, I was actually recruited into the financial services industry um, from a buddy of mine in college, I was uh, had a great resume going. I was running a bar, and so um, you know, was was not really in the professional world to say the least. Um, had a buddy of mine who had joined one of the big blue blooded uh, firms on the insurance side of things, and they also quote unquote do financial planning, but it's still very much a an insurance driven um, shop first and foremost. And so, um, again, was running the bar and he said, I think he'd be good at this. And knowing that I was going to be graduating college here in the next six months, I thought, well, it might not be bad to get something on the resume other than bartending. So, um, took him up on it and fell in love with it. Um, was fortunate to finish in the top 10 in the internship side of things in six months. And then the next year after you go full time, Um, you basically compete against everybody else that's in their first year of their contract and finish number one in the country, um, on the insurance production side of things. So fell in love with it that way. Um, and then ultimately as time goes on and you kind of learn the financial services industry, you start to question some of the things that maybe you're taught about the insurances as far as, um, being utilized for cash accumulation vehicles, et cetera. And as I kind of learned more, uh, you know, wandered down that more CFP and financial professional route of giving true good fiduciary advice, um, my inner beliefs didn't necessarily line up with what I was being told at the firm. So ultimately, we parted ways uh, be six years ago next month and went the independent route. And so I'm probably the least insurance um 
based advisor you'll ever find that has an insurance business. Um, but I, I think that's good for the, the clients and the end users for sure. Yeah. Which I think is phenomenal. And I'm so glad that you brought that up because there is so much out there. Um, and why does life insurance get that rap? You know, like <laughs> it gets it started. because there's a bunch of bad people that are selling it, looking out for their own pocketbooks, unfortunately, as opposed yeah. to, their clients. Yeah. um, and, and that's the reality of it a lot of times. Um, and that's unfortunate. Yeah. Which and is, I think more. what makes you a perfect guest to have on here because we want to get into, to that, like exactly what some of the misconceptions are, what some of the, like, what do we call them more on the, they're really more on the sales side. Like they're literally just out to sell a product, make a commission, and then they move on with their merry way. Right. Sean, I'm sorry. I interrupted well, you. I, what I was mentioning too, and you see more of it in these times of need or, and when emotion is high of when the markets were down last year and the pandemic, you're going to see a lot of it because it's sold off emotion. Um, not only on the life insurance side, but even like on the cash value side, they try to get into areas of like it's protected it's guaranteed why would you have your money in the stock market so there's some tactics there that are based around emotion which kind of cross right? the line be your own be bank your yeah. Yep. Yep. your own bank yeah yeah <laughs> i mean i remember when i had my insurance agency i don't know if sean told you but i come from the insurance world personally as as well and man when we were taught these showing um you know these reports we were showing like compounding returns over time and it was just like wow i mean you're gonna be a damn millionaire off of this hundred dollars that you put with it <laughs> so i mean it's just so misleading and so that's why it's really important to get real education from somebody that is a fiduciary that has your best interest um, and that's again why we have landed on today so let's get into the you know the meat of the podcast and um, give you guys some really tidbits about specifics on life insurance. To put it simply, like what is life insurance and how does it pertain to business owners? Yeah. So most of my, what my role is, um, you know, we do a lot of just retail client um, life disability, long-term care insurance um, product sales, but really where I work strategically with a lot of advisors across the country, Sean included, is with business owners. Um, because there is a genuine need, typically when you have business owners, specifically more than one business owner, but even if you do have a single owner, um, if they're taking on some debt to, to start a business, whatever it may be. Um, but in the business owner world, that's where I'd love to work, um, especially in partnership agreements. So again, going back to my background and why I am actually passionate about doing the insurance planning where a lot of advisors hate it, right? Because it's a complete liability. If somebody comes back negatively with underwriting, it can absolutely sour the relationship for an advisor that's probably managing the assets, right? And it's like, so they don't even want to have that conversation and, and rightfully so. Um, so a lot of times I can act as a buffer um, and I'm the one delivering that message if that's the case. But let's say you have a partnership in which my my father did, and this is my personal background and why I'm passionate on this is um, he owned a brother, him and his brother owned a business. My dad started it, his brought his younger brother um, along the way. It was a welding machine shop. Okay. Everything was great. Um, my dad was 27 years old. They had started the business, I believe, when he was 23, 24. So had it for a few years. Things were going well. All of a sudden, boom, blacks out one day, um, hits the pavement, gets diagnosed with a glioblastoma brain tumor, said, get your affairs in order. You've got three to six months to live. Um, there's no buy-sell funding in place. Um, 
thank God that he had purchased some individual term insurance to the tune of 400,000 four months prior to being diagnosed. Um, so my mother had something when he did eventually pass, but he ended up living 16 years and passed 16 years um, into a 20 year term contract. Wow. So I was able to, you know, that $400,000 was able to clean up the mortgage for her and, and pretty much was a saving grace as my dad was the primary um, breadwinner there. So it does have its role, right? But things could have been so much different with he and his brother. Um, unfortunately, I witnessed him and his brother, you know, when my dad passed, they were definitely at odds with each other because through the course of 16 years of my dad, you know, having to have a brain operation and just wasn't able to be the entrepreneurial spirited individual that he was when he started the business, you know, yeah. he basically take a step back and was almost an employee well, that's not necessarily fair to his brother either. And now that I'm on this side of it, you know, I understand it. I was pissed off at the time that, you know, his younger brother asked him, you know, basically forced him out of his business that he started. But right. now that I'm on this side of it, I completely see why, right? I mean, you're giving up 50% of your profits to another owner who is basically an employee. Um, but there was no buy-sell funding in place, right? There was no disability buyout. There was no, you know, life insurance there. And so, you know, then he's forced out of the business at pennies on the dollar instead of getting the, the true value out of it. So, that's really where my passion comes from working with business owners. And if you have a business owner, um, and even if you are, like I said, a, a solopreneur where you don't have a business partner, sometimes your business partner is the bank, right? So there are things to um, think about as far as protecting yourself, protecting partners, protecting your family. And you would definitely want to make sure that you have those um, contingency plans in place. Wow. Well, first of all, sorry for your loss. And secondly, I want to unpack that a little bit because there was a lot in there. Um, so first of all, um, you know, we're going to kind of get into each one of these and what they mean, because I know this is a lot to somebody that's listening and maybe not familiar with the industry, but, um, as you know, we work with a lot of health and fitness entrepreneurs. Um, actually that's, that's all that we work with. And so let's say specifically, because I speak personally with a lot of people that have partnerships, um, partnering agreements together. So let's talk about what, you know, a buy-sell agreement is who funds it, what those contracts look like and, and why somebody would, you know, I know you explained the situation um, with your, your own personal story, but let's talk about why somebody needs to have those in place and, and how valuable they can be. Yeah, absolutely. So um, a buy-sell agreement is much more than just insurance, right? It's, it's actually, the insurance has nothing to even do with it. It's just a funding mechanism within the agreement. Um, what a buy-sell agreement is and what if you have a partnership of any kind, every partnership should have this and you should put it in place while you're getting along. Um, because what it is, is really the document that gets pulled out in the event of when you're not getting along, which ultimately will happen at some point, almost guaranteed. Um, things aren't always rosy when you, know, you have, when you own a business, things can get tough. Um, but it's, it's a document that is a governing document that basically says, in the event of X, here's all these contingencies. What ultimately do we boil down to? And it's a legal document that, you know, if things do come to, you know, litigation, whatever it may be, the judge can pull out and say, look, at the time you signed this document, you guys all got along. This is what everybody agreed upon. This is the governing document, right? So it's going to plan for things like, yes, the death of a partner, uh, disability of a partner, 
And that's not just a quick disability um, like you would think of on a personal disability contract. Typically, it's you know you don't want to force your partner out if they're disabled for 90 days, which is typically when a typical disability policy kicks in. It's usually a 365-day deal or event, and, and it's basically a long-term play like my dad's scenario where he was never going to get back to 100% capacity, right? Okay. Then the 365 days, there's funding there available to buy the partner out at a fair market value. And all the buy-sell agreement does is creates an obligation on both sides, right? So if you have two partners, the obligation of partner A who becomes disabled is that if you are disabled long-term over 365 days, the obligation of partner B is to buy your shares at a fair market value. Your obligation as partner A is to relinquish those shares to partner B, but you've received fair value for those, right? right? Same thing on the life insurance side. Um, there's also, I mean, it's it's usually the, the Ds, right? Divorce, defection, um, there's retirement, right? If what happens, you guys, everything is merry at the end of the day. One of you wants to retire early, one of you doesn't, right? But you've got to address these things. Uh, so th these are all triggering events is what they're called inside of a buy-sell agreement and something that you want to account for. Um, I just had one personally that I executed last year for a client. Um, it was three business partners. Two of them were brothers. One was not a brother. And unfortunately, it was found out that one of the partners that was a brother um, was fraudulently taking money out of the company to the tune of almost half a million dollars. Wow. Well, thankfully, I had encouraged them in that discipline or in that uh, buy sell agreement that if one of the partners or shareholders was terminated for cause, which this obviously was a termination for cause event, um, yeah. they would receive a 40% discount on their shares, right? And that could be anything from, hey, uh, one of the partners went out, had too many soda pops, and, you know, right. got in an accident, killed somebody, and they're going to be locked up for a while, right? That's a bad decision, right? You don't want to reward a business partner for a bad decision. So um, ultimately, they were able to acquire his shares. Um, they basically, after the forensic accounting was done, didn't want to know what the total was, but basically said, gave me the option of we're not going to press charges, but you are going to relinquish your shares for the money that you basically stole. They got a nice little discount on the business. Now they own a 50-50. Um, but again, they had the legal protection in place of by sell agreement. Right. right. I want to just kind of jump in. There's a lot of golden nuggets there, because um, in yeah. my opinion, a lot of the buy sell agreements don't exist in these small partnerships yet. Agreed. I rarely see it where, and if they, they do exist, Sean, a lot of times, um, and I have them pull them out and I had one specifically pull one out of a safe one time. I'm like, Oh yeah, we got this, you know, here I said, let me see it. Oh yeah. It's right here in the safe, pull it out. And it had never been signed or executed. <laughs> right? So the attorney went through the time they paid him to draft it. They never yeah. actually signed and executed the document. Um, I also see it a lot of times where, you know, the life insurance is, primarily what people think of in a, in a triggering event in a buy-sell agreement, right? Sure. But I will tell you that it's the least likely event to actually happen. So many times I do see that, oh yeah, we have that funded. Don't worry about that. And I'll say, okay, and they've got a million dollars of term insurance. Okay, so be it. The odds of you dying before age 65 typically are less than 3%, right? Mm -hmm. Now the odds of one of you becoming disabled for a year or longer as a healthy male is almost 25%, about 23%, right? Females are just shy of 30 that's a hell of a lot more likelihood of an event happening on the disability buyout side of things than it is the life insurance. So I said, if I had to pick one of the two, if I'm an odds guy, right, I would much rather fund the obligation of the disability buyout right. than the life buyout, right? Yeah. But I've, I've yet to see a case where I've gone in and the disability buyout obligation in their contract has been funded. Right. And I mean, ultimately it is funded, right? Whether they want to acknowledge it or not, because if something does happen, 
they're funding it with after-tax dollars from cash flow from the business, mm -hmm. right? If, if one of the partners is no longer able to, to be present and, and work in the business, the other partner's going to have to buy them out. Money's got to come from somewhere. Either they've got to go get capital from a bank, and, and now they're paying interest to secure that note and, and paying it back with cash flow. I mean, the obligation is already there. It's just, do you use insurance as a funding mechanism? Absolutely. Well, let's, that is, I mean, there's, there's a lot there, but I have a lot on my list too. So <laughs> I'll try and keep it shorter. Sorry. <laughs> no, that was super cool. That it's was a, ton, ton it's of a huge topic. So I appreciate you explaining that. Um, but I want to move to, because this kind of goes along with it. I know a lot of um, people are hiring maybe employees that get to a certain point in their business where it'd be really tough to give up that person. And so let's talk a little bit about key employee retention strategies too. Yeah. So um, this is a hot topic right now, just because of the job environment and marketplace, yeah, right? For sure. Um, so a lot of what we do for individuals on that side of things is what we call like non-qualified deferred compensation planning, right? So um, let's say you have employees and you're offering your basic 401k, which most people should be, or a simple plan, something like that, something on a retirement plan basis, right? It's hard to be competitive, um, be looking to hire someone. And the first thing they go home and their spouse asks, well, do they offer a 401k or retirement plan? They say no. You know, it, that's kind of a no brainer to be yeah. offering employees, get the health insurance, all that good stuff. Everybody's pretty competitive in that space now. So if you've got someone above and beyond that, um, the downside with all of those plans are those are qualified plans and qualified means is that they are government sponsored plans. And so the government dictates that you have to play. Everybody's got to play by the same rules, right? From the CEO to the janitor, um, everything has to be offered across the board. Non-qualified deferred comp plans are, are going to be much different, right? Those are more carve-out plans that you can carve out for your key executives, key employees, um, and, and those don't fall under the, they do in some circumstances in, in way, shape, or form. I mean, you, you can't just be a lone ranger out there, but you basically can do carve-out plans where you can incentivize people um, to stick around. It's called putting golden handcuffs on them, basically. Um, where it's a must must be present to win type of deal, right? So yeah. you can fund these um, in any way, shape, or form. You can fund it with equities. You can fund it with um, insurance-based products if you want something more on the guaranteed side of things, or you can own the insurance on them, you know, until ultimately in a permanent type contract, until ultimately they do pass away. Nobody's beat that system yet, right? And then at the point of their death, obviously the business owns that contract. They get the, the cash disbursement. And, you know, they can pay that obligation on a non-qualified deferred comp plan. Let's say they say you got to be here for 10 years at your retirement in 10 years. We're going to give you X dollars on the way out the door. It could be a lump sum, whatever it is. They can fund that with after-tax cash flow, knowing that ultimately at the end of the day, the insurance contract, when they pass away, is going to come back. They could utilize cash values in those contracts if you have appropriately designed policies to fund that. Um, but that's a lot of what we're doing as well. It's trying to, to tie people to the organization that says, Hey, you know, I'm seven years in here and you're trying to recruit me away. I, if I stick around for another three years, I'm walking away from four or 500 or four or $500,000 or more. Right. Um, it's going to be pretty tough to, to jump for, even if it's a, you know, salary increase or, or whatever. 
Yeah, and that is really a good point you bring up, especially now because it is so difficult to find good help. Um, I mean, that is a huge topic. And actually, we talk about, uh, you know, the difference in hiring and, and what kind of employee to, to hire. And um, not only that, but we spend so much time, energy into training them and working with them to have some kind of a contractual ability to make them want to stick around longer is is awesome. Yeah. And there's so many different ways that you can can fund these or can structure these too, right? I mean, you can do it through SARS, through stock appreciation rights. Um, you know, that's more of a, a, a direct equity play. Give them direct equity in the company. You could give them what I call phantom stock, which is basically performance-based. So they're going to be treated as an owner on distributions, um, you know, if, if certain thresholds are met or goals are met or revenues, et cetera then they're going to participate in a percentage of those earnings above and beyond those target market uh, target marks. There's, there's any number of ways that we can, we can structure these plans as well. Um, but they are definitely, definitely becoming more and more popular. Yeah. yeah. So this is so cool because a lot um, of entrepreneurs that we're working with are earlier in their stages and they're like, I would have to say smaller business yet that yep. is scaling like quickly and this has not even been on the radar. So the amount of value you're bringing is going to be super awesome for these entrepreneurs to listen to, to like understand some of these concepts are out there. Yep. Uh, and that's how these big companies get big, bigger right? because they're providing these kind of, kind of benefits. Yep. 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 That's how you're going to be able to scale. Um, and speaking of scale, let's talk about succession planning a little bit. So let's say um, you know, you've built your business and you're only seeing it getting bigger and you've got a family at home that you're supporting and um, maybe you're getting later in your career. I know this isn't generally our population, but it is going to happen to all of us eventually, right? So let's talk about succession planning, what it is, what are some things they can do to prepare for that time? Yeah, so I always say first and foremost, um, I hope everyone loves their business, right? That's, I know I love my business. My wife tells me I do it for free and she's probably right if uh, if I was in the financial situation to do that, because um, I do, I love to help people. Um, but ultimately every business owner's goal should be to quote unquote, get your number, right? And if you can get your number that provides enough for you and your family and, and meets your objectives and goals with whatever, whatever you want to do later in life, whether that's legacy planning, all of that, if you can get someone to purchase your business for that number and working with an advisor like Sean or any, you know, any advisor that you have that you're working with, uh, that should be your goal, right? And, and ultimately, if you can get that number and then take that risk off the table, do it. I've unfortunately found so many individuals that they love their business and they, they get in this mindset of no one can do what I can do with the business. And ultimately, over time, they do. They age things start falling through the cracks and, and they had the ability to sell their business here. And now it's on a downward trajectory, mm, right? Sure. And so we're yeah. looking at getting these multiples. Now their multiples going the wrong direction where they probably were better suited to get out of the way and let somebody either that, you know, they have groomed, whether that's a management team or an individual they've identified within the organization, or even if it's private equity money or outside money coming in to purchase them, they're probably better off just taking the risk off the table and then ultimately starting something else if they wanted to, right? Yeah. Um, but it, it's succession planning is a big thing. And I will tell you from doing it, you know, with a lot of business owners, to do it correctly, you're going to need, 
ideally a, probably a seven year runway to structure it appropriately. If, if your goal is to sell it to what I refer to as insiders, insiders would be again, a key employee or two, a management team, whatever that may be. Because the reality is, is again, when you're running a business, banks and, and people that you're doing business, they're doing business with you. They know your balance sheet. They know, you know, yeah. your financials inside and out. Um, chances are that you as a current business owner aren't going or you are going to be more financially stable and have a better balance sheet than let's say a key employee, right? Mm -hmm. So what we need to do is basically, you know, as far as tier one capital goes, if they are going to buy you out, however we structure this, you know, maybe it is in a, in a form of a basically performance agreement of buyout over time where you say, you know, if we hit these metrics, right, which also grows your business and your cash flow along the way, I, you, I'm going to sell you X number of shares along the way, right? So they can kind of buy you out over time because typically they're not going to have, again, the balance sheet to go to the bank and just say, hey, it's a $2 million buyout. Um, I, I need to borrow 2 million bucks. And they're going to go, yeah. Yeah. Good luck. right? <laughs> For so, a hope and a dream, yeah. Yeah, we need to introduce them to the bank and over time show them, you know, that we are transitioning the shares to them. And and it's not just something, you know, if it's an outside sale to a private equity group or a competitor, sure, they can go secure capital. That's that's pretty easily done. But a lot of people care about these businesses and these people that they work with and, and they want it to be left in, in the custody of somebody that is going to care for their clients and people the way that they do. And that's the best way to do this. So yeah, if you're thinking about it set it up early, start talking to a professional early about it. And it can be pretty seamless. And it can also provide some some income for you on the back end, right? A lot of times we're going and securing as much tier one capital as we can. Let's say it is at 2 million bucks and, and the bank says, okay, we'll give you a million based off your balance sheet to, to lend. Well, now that owner may say, you know what, I'll, I'll you know, take a million bucks on the back end. Here's the rate I'm going to charge. Or maybe you keep the real estate, right? And now it's a rent back agreement. Now you've got some cash flow, almost like an annuity payment or social security type payment, you know, going out X number of years into your early years of retirement. And it can be a win-win for both sides. Yeah. So on our clientele, I would have to say um, there's a certain segment of our clientele that may not have sellable businesses. And the succession planning may not exist, definitely does not exist yet. Um, so by implementing a lot of the structures that Landon's been talking about, you can grow this business to become sellable. But mm -hmm. in the meantime, if you don't have a sellable business, we could talk a little bit about life insurance funding that succession plan for you. Because yeah. if you are 35, 45, 50 years old, whatever it is, and you don't have a succession plan, meaning you don't have a buy-sell agreement down, you don't have anything on paper, when you go away as the solepreneur, your business goes away. Yep. Right. So how's the income going to be impacted at home when you have a family? That's either the buy-sell agreement, the succession planning, um, also known as, and in, in this case, life insurance. Or yeah. like if you, if you are like a brick and mortar, let's say you have a facility, you have debt, anything like that too, you want to make sure your debts are also covered as well. Guess what else? And I think Landon's probably experienced this too. If you don't have everything on paper and you don't have the funding figured out, Guess what happens to the business? It becomes a fire sale. Yep. Yep. Once was, you know, very viable. Now you might get 30, 40 cents on the dollar of what it was actually worth. Maybe. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And this is really a perfect transition, I think, to talking about the different types of life insurance that we can uh, fund some of these contracts with. Um, so let's start off with um, term life insurance. I think that's probably the most common and probably the most utilized, I think rightfully so for most people, especially in our demographic. Um, but let's talk about life, uh, term life insurance, what it is, when somebody yep. would need it. And um, yeah, let's just start there. So term insurance is going to be, like you said, it's going to be what people typically think of when they, when they hear or think about life insurance, right? Um, I will say the earlier you own it, the younger you are and the healthier you are when you get it, buy as much of it as you can while you're young and healthy, because tomorrow it is not guaranteed. And my dad is a perfect example of that. He bought it seven months prior to being diagnosed with a brain tumor. Wow. So, you know, after he'd taken that fall, that's completely off the table for him, right? Where yeah. he bought it before as a young, healthy, you know, 20 something year old. And it's, it's, cheap, it's dirt cheap. If, yeah. if you look at the numbers, if you yeah. buy it in thirties, it is dirt cheap. Um, and it's, and it's basically, it's good for a set period of time. That's why it's called the term contract. So you can buy term contracts from 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years. Um, some of them are also available on an annual renewable basis, which means they're start cheaper, but they're going to increase in cost over time. I prefer a fixed rate term insurance. Um, if you're working with somebody in their thirties, they should own a 30 year term contract that gets them out to retirement age, because ultimately at the end of the day, um, let's say they're 35 and they buy a 30 year term contract that puts them at 65. The goal would be to have their balance sheet and their, their equities and investment accounts, um, to a point where they are self-insured at that point. If something happened to them, they're, they're not leaving anything behind as far as being a burden. Um, their kids are probably fully grown and their kids are going to walk away with, you know, their investment accounts, their homes, physical assets, et cetera. So really at that point they're, they're self-insured. Um, so really it's, it's the cheapest, easiest way to own life insurance. And basically it's, if you die any point in time, um, within that period of term insurance and you've made your premium payments, the obligation again is on the insurance company to pay that, um, pay that out. Yeah. And just to go back to what you were saying with um, your dad and his brain tumor, now there are um, health qualifications that you have to meet. And so that's why it's important to do this. If you're 28 years old, get life insurance. I mean, it is going to be the cheapest that you'll ever be able to get it. You're probably going to get a mortgage at some point. You're probably going to, maybe you won't have kids, I'm not sure, but you'll probably have other people that are depending on you in some capacity. So Right now is, I mean, you can probably get it if you're 25, 28, 30, you can probably get life insurance for $15 a month, right? It's, there's yeah, no reason absolutely. to not, to not well, get it. We were just working on mine landing here recently. Uh, yeah. 41 years old was like $400 a year for half million term. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And we're dirt. all in the health and fitness industry. So we're all pretty darn healthy. So <laughs> <laughs> Yep. That is a nice thing about working in your industry. I don't have to yep. worry nearly as much about uh, <laughs> my issues and liver enzymes and all that good stuff. So uh, right. that's, that's pretty good. But yeah, I mean, it, realistically, I mean, if you're, if you're 30 years old and the nice part is, is the younger you are, most of these carriers now. Um, and again, we represent all the major carriers from principal to Hancock to Prudential to you name it. Right. Um, and we make them compete for the business. And it, most of them have accelerated underwriting up to a million dollars where you don't even have to do a physical, right? Mm -hmm. So it's literally, we submit your application. 
as long as you've seen some sort of doctor, they can find a medical record on you in the last two years and everything was good to go there. It's almost a, yep, rush it through, good to go. Here's your premium. And, and like I said, a million bucks on a 30 year old, you're probably looking at 40, 50 bucks a month. Let's say that you did obtain life insurance. You have life insurance in force. You're five, six years into your policy. You have that qualification, not, not with every carrier, but a lot of these contracts, you have that qualification that carries over. So if that's a renewable term, you can continue to renew it. It might be a higher rate, but you still yeah. have that insurability factor, which is kind of nice too. And convertibility factor. If something's mm -hmm. going to happen, you know, there's all kinds of things there. Just lock it in young. Yep. I mean, perfect example is another individual in, in our office who just reached out to me for some, and I thought for all intents and purposes, he's completely healthy, plays a lot of tennis, does, I mean, very active. And he had some ferritin levels, which I don't even know what the hell that means, but they were high and now it's a table four rate. And I'm like, this is crazy, right? Yeah. So because yeah. the premium can increase. I mean, if you're not in a healthy, you could a lot of times still get the insurance, but it's not gonna be as good as rate when your health, um, I guess, goes downhill a little bit. Yeah, you yeah. got a table table four rate, right? Which is, I mean, you've got preferred plus, preferred standard plus down standard. Ways. You start getting down to the table rates and they get pretty expensive, right? Where if you'd have just bought it at 30 something oh. years old, owned it for 30 years, you're going to pay a hell of a lot less for it than when you wait to be, buy it at 45, strictly for the fact that you're 45 years old now. Even if you are the same health, you're probably going to pay more for it from 45 to 65 mm -hmm. than you would have from 35 to 65. Yep. Yeah, that's because I mean, at the end of the day, and if, if people are listening, not understanding, it's it's because they have to rate the risk. Yep. Right. Yep. So that's what's going on down to. Yep. It's all, it's all about risk. Yep. So Correct. let's move on to talking about whole life. So there's a whole bunch of different kinds of whole life. And I know this is probably where things get a little bit confusing and muddy for people, but there's variable, there's universal, there's straight whole life, there's index, blah, blah, blah. There's so many different kinds. So let's Let's just break down the most common ones. And when would these make sense? Um, I guess let's just pick, like I said, the most and, common and when they would make sense. And I want to jump in real quick. I'm going to regret not talking about this is the be in your own bank. So we have to touch yeah. this because I know we're kind of getting um, uh, yep. short on time here, but I want to chat about this because I literally, I don't know if it's weekly, but it's a couple of times a month. I get a text from a client like, what's this be in your own bank? Like, What's this cash flow banking thing? So yeah. let's let's jump into that after after a while here. Yeah. Gladly. So um, <laughs> again, I came from one of the big three insurance life insurance firms um, in my past life, and that was the conversation. Right, is go sell this thing and tell them they can be their own bank. Um, so yes, you've got whole life, which is basically um, utilizing a fixed portfolio through an insurance carrier, right? So all the premiums that pay are paid in are going to the insurance carriers, what they call their general portfolio. The 90% of an insurance carrier's general portfolio is typically tied to something like T-bills or treasury bills that are very, very safe, secure. And as we know, um, historically very low yielding assets, but obviously since they're an insurance carrier, um, they have to fulfill promises. So if something happens like a 9-11 and they have millions of dollars in death claims flying out the door, those funds have to be guaranteed. They can't run the risk of market volatility. Um, so it's a very safe, secure way yeah. to accumulate assets. Now, the issue is in a whole life contract that you're also or in any type of contract, you're going to pay the mortality and what they call an M&E charge, mortality and expense costs, right? 
So in year one, they're going to tell you, yes, you're going to, you're going to lose 75% of the money that you put in. If it's 10,000 a year, you're only going to have $2,500 in that account. But over time, this thing is going to be great, right? And they're going to show you all these numbers on this paper. And it's all hypothetical numbers because the insurance companies can always pull levers and, and their, their dividend payouts never guaranteed. Yeah. And so over time, what the people figure out is I can't act as my own bank if, if I'm upside down on this policy 12, 15 years later, right? Or I'm just breaking even, right? right. And I always look at that as if I could put money in the equities market and every, let's say conservatively 10 years, we double it, right? Yeah. And um, if you use rule 72, much faster than that, right? But let's say we have some good equities returns and 10 years, our money is doubled, but in a whole life policy, I'm not even back to even yet. Yeah. Which is better for you, right? In the long term. If you're yeah. young, you should be taking risks. Um, it's okay to have some market volatility. In fact, if you are in your 30s and 40s and even early 50s, market volatility is not a bad thing. That's when we should be putting more money into the market mm -hmm. because over time, equities have always outperformed fixed income, which essentially is what a whole life contract is, is you're going out and buying very low yielding fixed income, very, very safe conservative products, or, but you're also paying a mortality expense charge on it. So to be your own bank, you're going to be a hell of a lot better off putting money into an equities account than mm -hmm. it's, okay, yes, it may not be tax sheltered, but what they're also trying to sell you on is the tax savings along the way, where if you have a good advisor, I know, Sean, you we're just doing this towards the end of the year. That's tax yeah. loss, interesting, non-qualified accounts along the way. Um, yes, you're you're going to pay some capital gains tax on your gains, but at least you've got gains to make it on. If you've got a whole life contract <laughs> over 15 years, you haven't gotten back to even, you're not paying any gains on it because you're upside down on it, right? Um, but what people, they won't tell you is, is when you pull the money out and act as your own bank, that's not your money. If it was your money, the insurance company wouldn't charge you an interest rate on it. Let's pause for just a second, because I feel like that is, um, it might just get a little bit confusing to, I think, our audience. So let's like break this down just a little bit more. So we have a whole life policy and we have a death benefit that comes along with that contract. So right. if you carry this whole life policy, you have this contract you have this, as long as you continue to pay that premium every single month, you are going to have this death benefit available. Now, the whole idea is when you're paying this premium, a portion of it goes into this accumulation account. And this accumulation account over time is going to add up, gain interest. And this is essentially what you're talking about and what this whole life insurance banking means. But what you're telling us is that they have this M&E charge, which basically is administrative fees that help the insurance carrier save their own asses, basically. That is costing a lot of the money that you're investing into, these, into this account. And so that's why it's not always in your best interest to put your money into such a thing. So if I bought this life insurance, then it costs $10,000 for one year immediately $5,000 is going into your pocket for a commission. Right. And that's why we talk a little bit more highly on term insurance, because it really is just getting the job done for what you need it for versus whole life. Right. So there are, are different types of whole life insurance. There is variable life insurance, which essentially just means that accumulation account that I was referring to is tied to uh, variable accounts, um, I'm going to let you explain that a little bit more. Yep. 
So variable, variable, you actually have to have your securities license to sell um, because the underlying account that the funds are invested in, rather than going to that insurance carrier's general portfolio of fixed income, um, you can actually select sub accounts to invest your, your money in like an S&P 500 fund. Um, a lot of the indexes you can actually invest in. And now again, with a variable account, you're, you're subject to market performance, which again, that's great. Um, but if I'm going to put my money into the market, why not just put it into the market and not pay the yeah. m and &E? I'll go buy the term insurance and, and have it professionally managed by Sean, who's watching and, and buying, you know, right. either individual stocks or, or funds that are in my best interest and into my risk tolerance, rather than just throwing it into an S&P 500 index. Or, or hell, if, if you don't have an advisor, you'd be better off throwing it in there blindly and do it that way than paying the M&E charges by the term insurance, right? Yeah. So it's the same thing, but I don't, I don't, I mean, they're going to, they're going to sell you on the tax savings of it. Yep. And, so let's talk about how they're going to sell you on it. Let's talk about the hypotheticals that they're going to print out. They're going to have this paper mm -hmm. that has these uh, beautiful looking line items on there, these dollar amounts with this bold at the end. Let's talk about the hypotheticals, how they're able to, I guess, emulate this amazing return at the end. Yeah. I mean, so it has gotten a little better. So take, you know, they, they no longer can go out and illustrate eight plus percent returns anymore. It's got to be a little more realistic. Um, and, you know, now it's typically, you know, if I do have to illustrate one and somebody is hell bent on it, I'll maybe illustrate it at five, five and a half percent max return. And that's assuming that, again, the market is doing the eight percent. But that other two and a half percent, you know, is coming off the top or three percent is coming off the top in, in expenses, because that's, yeah. that's the only way to get a real assumption out of these things. It's the only time, in my opinion, that, that, that permanent insurance comes into play is right now. If you are married or if you're single, if you're single, you're worth north of 13 million. Yep. Or if you're married, you're worth more than 26 million or you know, the downside is, is that 2026 is around the corner and, and the Trump tax cuts are going to roll back um, to 5 million per inflation adjusted. It's basically going to be about 7 million per spouse that you can give away um, tax free, estate tax free at this point. So let's just say if you are married and you've got a net worth of north of $15 million, then then the permanent insurance conversation becomes a real conversation. And I've right. done two of them this week and, and what we're putting in place there to fund for the kids. So that way the business owners um, can basically transition their company without their kids having to sell the asset at the second spouse's death is, is guaranteed UL insurance, guaranteed universal life insurance, which basically is guaranteed term insurance out to age 120. It's the cheapest way you can buy permanent insurance. There's not much cash accumulation. There is really no cash accumulation tied to it. It's strictly just death benefit. And that's what life insurance is meant for. It's meant for death benefit. That's, that's really the only time a permanent product makes sense, in my opinion. Well, we're definitely on the same page on that. I mean, yeah. permanent insurance has a place, but it, it, it's it's like when that's your only, you know, your, your only tool is a hammer. Everything looks like a nail. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, so use insurance for what it's for. Majority of us, it's going to be term insurance, and there is a use case for permanent insurance, and that's when we get into some of the estate planning needs. Right, like Landon right. just mentioned. Yeah, correct. And I I'm like you. I'm, I'm like you, Landon. I've yet to see a good be your own bank policy. They say they exist, but I've yet to see one. I'm with you. And uh, I've reviewed thousands of them. And and my perception is, you're tied to a contract with your additional cash that you're supposedly saving. 
you, I mean, what's going to happen? And my question is, you ask the salesman of the life insurance policy, say this is going to be a million dollars in 20 years. What's going to happen if I want to take out 950,000 of that to buy my dream cabin? (laughs) (laughs) I think they're going to start stuttering a little bit. And yeah, but what does happen though? Answer that question. So, so what happens is um, they'll look at your cost basis, right? The, amount you put in and let's say, let's say you put in 600,000 and it is worth 950,000. Well, that policy is more than likely going to implode because all the cash is out of it. And when it does, the IRS is going to come knocking because now you have traded capital gains tax on an investment account of 15%, right? For ordinary income taxes, which for many people could be 30 plus percent. Right. And so they're going to say, yeah, well, you put $600,000 into this contract, you pull out 950. So 600,000 is your cost basis. Sure, you can have that back tax free, just like in an investment account, you put yep. 600,000 in an investment account, that again comes back tax free. But that 350,000 of gain, that's now going to be treated as ordinary income in that year that you took it. Yep. So now your tax rate just went through the roof because you just showed 350,000 of income just by pulling out of your whole life contract if you cashed it in, right? Then it, it exploded. Yeah. yeah, but when you can take it out on a loan, but now you're paying 8% on a $350,000 loan. I mean, that's that's insane, right? So it's it's just gets ugly. And then you see estates go into default. default. There's all sorts of things that, that get real ugly and real scary there real quick. So I think the moral of this story is if you are considering whole life insurance or permanent, excuse me, permanent insurance, it is best. What's that? (laughs) But honestly, that's what I was going to say is it's best to work with an estate planner, a financial planner of some kind, not somebody that doesn't have the credentials to be selling that type of product. If they're a straight insurance salesman, um, I don't know what you would even call it because they don't have to take- refine though, Amanda. That's the hard part, right? I mean, the, the old yeah. shop that well, I work for, they, they tout themselves as a financial planning firm. And there are some guys there that do a good job of them. I'm not yeah. saying all of them, but the vast majority of them are yeah. going to tell you, oh, this whole life insurance is like a Roth IRA with a free physical. No, nothing. I mean, that was literally verbiage that was thrown around. That should be illegal for people. Yeah, to understand, they right? shouldn't be able to say that. But yeah. yeah, it's it's absolutely, that's the way it's sold. I mean, if you feel there's something to it. So then find a financial planner, a CFP. <laughs> well, and Landon made a good point too. And, and I think what it kind of boils down to is be educated, yeah. right? Term insurance is going to be your friend, right? That's majority of us that we're going to be using. And there's some one-off cases um, there's a lot changing with the estate planning right now. And Landon kind of mentioned with the, the roll, rollback in 2026, we don't know what's going to happen, but right now it's like 24, 25 million that you don't even have to worry about estate planning taxes. Yeah. You can give right. all that away to your kids right now without any, any issues. Right. And then, so the permanent yeah. policy can come into place to maybe fund the business. So you don't um, fund the tax that's due. So you don't have to sell the business. You can keep that afloat and it can stay in the family. So permanent policy can come into play, but we're talking for the extreme net worth where you're going to yeah. have an estate tax problem. It shouldn't be something that ties up your cash. It should be a right. tool that can help you. Now, it might have been a little bit more fun if we had had Landon come in, dancing around, talking on a TikTok here and selling a, a be your own bank, do what the yeah. rich does, you do. But it's not the way it's it's supposed to be um, right. when it's when it's done right. It's a good tool. 
if something feels off, it probably is. That's what I, I tell people. If you feel like you're being sold something, I always tell my clients, look, I don't want you to ever, I don't want to sell you anything. You're going to maybe buy something, but you're going to be educated on why and you're going to feel good about why you own it. Um, and and I won't ever have to apologize for selling you something, right? Because yeah. it's going to be the right fit at the right time for what it is that you need, right? Yep. That's, I won't ever have to lose sleep like at night. pushing something on you, run for the hills because that should never be the case. Yep, 100%. Well, I think that is a perfect place to end this episode today. And you are a wealth of knowledge. I appreciate you being on. We definitely know your heart's in the right place, especially with what you do. You can definitely tell. So we appreciate your time and appreciate you being on the show today. No, I appreciate you guys. Thanks for having me and uh, keep, keep, keep on keeping on. It's been fun to watch you guys and your growth and excited to see where you guys go in the future. Awesome. All right, thanks, thanks, man. Take care, guys. If you like this episode, please be sure to subscribe and turn on your notifications so that you don't miss a beat. We'd love it if you'd share this podcast, your Instagram story, your Facebook page, or any of your other social media platforms so that we can help other health and fitness entrepreneurs out there succeed in business. We so appreciate you listening in and until next time, Keep your goals high, but keep each step attainable.